in our 2020 series. 2020 series is about the fact that we, we've all learned things from our past and it should influence our future. And I want us to have a wise perspective of our past that lets us live wisely in the future, that as we look back, we look ahead. Um, and so I was thinking about this. Have you ever done something where you said hindsight's 2020? Ever done something where you thought, I should have known better? I had that moment last night. All right, so here, here's what happened. Um, my wife needed a, just kind of a weekend away with some of her friends, and, and so she, she went to New York City, and so it was me doing double duty around the house, uh, playing the dad role and the mom role, and we got some sick kids, and, and just a lot of fun stuff going on. The dog threw up, and I'm like, oh, yeah, that's wonderful. You haven't thrown up for nine months. You picked this time. Great. And you could have done it on the floor, but instead you picked the carpet. Great. Awesome. Um, so, so I'm in that moment, and I uh, got to clean that up. And one, like Corinne and I, we divide responsibilities. And, and so like I'll do some things, she'll do some things. She does vacuuming. That's one of the things that she does. Um, and so, but she's not there. So I get the vacuum. And I'm looking at it, and I'm embarrassed to say that I knew, I knew how to turn it on. But I didn't know how to put the one attachment on. And I'm like trying to get it off and trying. And I'm like, all right, well, that says unlock. And I'm like pulling, and it's not going. And I'm like, well, that says unlocked, and I'm pulling, and nothing's happening. I'm like, what in the world is going on with this thing? And I'm like, well, maybe I need to, like, press both. And I press both, and I pull it, and I pull it up hard, and I punched myself in the face with a vacuum cleaner handle. I did, and it hurt. <laughs> and I was thinking, like, I really hope I don't have a black eye at church because I lost a fight to a vacuum cleaner. That's just, yeah, that's embarrassing. Um, so, so, but here's the thing. I'm never, ever, ever going to make that mistake again. I know what happens if I do that and my face is over top of the vacuum. I'm, I'm going to punch myself. I have learned that lesson. I probably should have known that ahead of time. I know. But I've learned, and so we're going to move forward. Look, 2020 series, what we want to do is we want to say, we want to live for the future like we wish we had lived in the past. We're going to live for the future like we wish we had lived in the past. We're going to learn from our regrets. We're going to let God teach us. And we're going to live differently in the future. That's the biblical concept of wisdom, is to navigate the future the right way the first time based on what God's already shown us in the past. That I can learn from somebody else's mistakes, somebody else's failures. I can learn from my own. I'm going to say, this is what God wants for me in the, in the future. So what we've been doing is looking at Joseph, a man in the scriptures, who I think is an absolute model of integrity. And I think integrity is a lot of what we look back. We say, I'm glad I behaved in integrity, and I want to be a person of integrity moving forward. And so Joseph is a guy who I, I think does that well, especially in difficult scenarios when the odds are stacked against him. So we're in the story. We, we, we kind of covered last week where Joseph had been, uh, he'd been, hated by his brothers, and so he was beaten. He was sold into slavery, and then Joseph makes it into the slave, slave master's house and rises to the top where he's in charge of just about everything. And now we're going to pick up the story where, where things are going to fall apart. So Joseph has um, he's become a trusted asset to a man named Potiphar, who is a slave master. The, the text really reads to, to imply that Joseph was moved to not just the center of, of what Potiphar was doing, but really became a, a key part of all that, that Potiphar thought of. He was close to the heart of Potiphar, that he was moved from the field to the house. He was given little responsibility to given great responsibility. And what we're going to find is that it all falls apart. And every bit of Joseph's life and hopes and dreams and future in his mind are wrecked. And none of it None of it is because of anything he has done wrongly. 
So I think we learn an incredible amount of wisdom and integrity from a guy who's in a situation that he doesn't want to be because somebody else made a choice and somebody else did things that ended up changing his entire destiny. I think we learn a lot about integrity. I think we're going to learn it this week. I think we're going to learn it next week. Let's read the text. Genesis chapter 39. Now Joseph was well built and handsome. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. One day, he went into the house to attend to his duties, and none of his household servants was inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, Come to bed with me. But he left the cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. When she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, she called her household servants. Look, she said to them, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. She kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. Then she told him this story. That Hebrew slave you brought us came to me to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. When his master heard the story, his wife told him, saying, This is how your slave treated me. He burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison the place where the king's prisoners were confined. Let's pray. God, um, I thank you that you chose to record this story in Scripture. I thank you that through imperfection and through chaos, through manipulation, we see a story that, that so, so easily connects with much of our own story. And Father God, I pray that we would understand it and we'd live, um, we'd live for the future based on what you've taught us in the past. We ask that in your son's name. Amen. What you have here is sort of this story of two contrasting integrities. You've got Joseph, and, and we don't know her name, so I'm just going to make one up for her. She's going to be Mrs. Potiphar this morning. So you've got Joseph and Mrs. Potiphar, and you couldn't have more opposite people in the same story. You, you really couldn't. Um, and, and so we're going to look at, and I think we can learn from both of their stories. Um, I, I think we can understand things from both of their stories. Um, and what I, what I want us to understand before we get going is, is whenever we talk about decisions that end up in regret, we, we make a connection to our own past and our own person, personal history. And, and so really, I don't want you to dwell there. That's not the nature of the sermon. The nature of the sermon is not to punish you for your past, it's to pro propel you for the future. And, and so you've got those experiences in your past, and, um, and I think it's important for us to kind of put them in a right category. They happened. They did, and, and some of the things we regret were wrong, and they were, they were evil, and, and so what do we do with that? And just real quick, we're actually going to do a, a whole sermon on this come uh, sometime next year um, where, where we're looking at sin as, as uh, the, the nature of sin, where oftentimes we talk about the penalty of sin and separation from God or the power of sin, how it's addictive and it, it oppresses, uh, but we overlook one that I think is really important, which is the residue of sin. And the residue of sin is kind of this, the, the guilt that hangs with you. The shame that feels new when you remember something you did 15 years ago. That's the residue of sin. 
Scripture speaks to that, and we don't have, that's not the, the, the point of our sermon, but I just, I feel inclined to say, let's put that in the right perspective before we, we move forward, because I don't want you to keep reliving this and reliving the shame uh, as we talk about Mrs. Potiphar and what she does. First uh, John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, so there's the contingency. That's you going to Jesus. We'll see it's to Jesus in just a second. It's not to another person. It's not to a pastor or somebody in ministry. If we confess our sins to Jesus, there's the condition. He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Other scriptures say cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And I love that concept, that cleanse, that purify, because I in my own life, from my own residual effects, the residue of sin in my life, I need to cling to that truth to say, you know what, I'm clean. And anytime that Satan tries to remind me of it anew and bring a shame back like it's new and it's powerful and it's over me, I'm going, that's not accurate. I've been cleansed. I've been purified through, through the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. So we move forward with that perspective that the residue of sin is behind us. And so we look to the future, we're learning from the lessons in the past. So we've got Mrs. Potiphar. Uh, we'll look at her first, who's obsessed with what she can't have. She sees Joseph. And she wants Joseph. She sees his ruggedness, his handsomeness, and she desires him. The, the text uh, in the Hebrew says that she lifted her eyes at him. Um, she took the time to observe Joseph. She began to desire him. She became infatuated, infatuated with him. And, and in her mind, she's in a position of power. She's the slave master's wife. She's able to have whatever she wants. And so Joseph is in off limits. And so she pursues Joseph. But Joseph, with his integrity, rejects her. But the story doesn't end there. Why? Because Mrs. Potiphar does not handle rejection well. She doesn't. And I have found in my own life and in others' life that our integrity, or lack thereof, shows up in the face of rejection. Really, really, it does. Nothing will reveal and put the light on how much integrity you actually have. Nothing will do it quite like being rejected will. To not get what you want, to not get a promotion, to not get a job, to not, to not get the, the praise and the approval of somebody else, to not get a person that you want. Nothing will challenge your integrity, in my opinion, in my experience, more than rejection. To deal with the embarrassment, the shame, the, the exposure, the vulnerability. Handling rejection, if you're a teen, if you're a teen or a young adult, handling rejection will be one of the greatest skills you can develop in life. Handling rejection well. And understanding that because somebody doesn't want you doesn't mean the world doesn't want you. Understanding because you, got, you, you didn't get a job that you wanted doesn't mean that nobody wants to hire you. It doesn't mean that God himself has given up on you. And I, 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 love, uh, I love young people. and I, that's, that's, Now, please take that to heart. To find a way to cope with rejection in faith, not in despair, is so incredibly incredibly important for you in life. Uh, instead of handling it well, instead of just moving on, Mrs. Potiphar, uh, she, she turns from embarrassment to spite. And very, very cold at this point. I mean, you read the text, and this is, this is just bitterness. This is revenge. And you think, revenge for what? All he said was, no, I don't want you. Repeatedly, over and over again. And she couldn't handle that. And so she sees an opportunity to trap him. I don't have him, but hey, I've got his cloak. 
So I can take his cloak and I can use it to manipulate the story to get everybody to believe something. I'm just going to blame everything on Joseph. And blame is, blame is always, when, when rejection is there, blame will always show up. Blame is so just destructive to our relationships. I've, I've seen this a lot in, in uh, different marriage counseling scenarios where, where I, I've, God, ha, God has shown again and again that when we blame, we step away from responsibility, but by default, we also step away from relationship. It's a step away from, from responsibility, but you can't step away from responsibility without stepping away from the person as well. And so you got Mrs. Potiphar who's like, this isn't me, this is you, this is you, this is you. She sounds a lot like Adam in the garden, to be honest. Like Adam in the garden, when, when, when he eats the fruit and God shows up and says, hey, why have you sinned? Adam's going, that woman, so, so not me, like step away from responsibility, step away from her. That woman that you, that, this is really all your fault now that I think about it, God. That woman that you gave me, she's responsible for this. This is, so blame is, is so, it, it's so addictive in a sense when, we, when we're trying to cope with rejection. But here's the thing. If a person lives without integrity, blame becomes second nature because we're guarding what's so important. What's so important? We are. My own image. My own belief that I'm not, not a person who should be rejected. We're guarding. And when self-protection is more important than right behavior, when self-protection is more important than right behavior, then blame becomes ingrained and instinctive. And you know what you find? That that person doesn't really have a close circle of trusted people because they've stepped away from everyone. I can't imagine for a second that Mrs. Potiphar is close to anyone in life. And clearly her own image is more important than avoiding any, anything that has to do with rejection. Begs the question, why do you have integrity? Like, why do, you, why do you want to do what's right? I find most people have a sense of wanting to have integrity. Even, even people who don't care about God, who don't want anything to do with him, they, they have a sense of integrity about them. Um, is, it, is it because it just feels right? Because it feels good to be right? Do you, do you want to have integrity because other people will think highly of you or because it will help your career? Or why do you have integrity? Because uh, I think what, what we see and why Joseph has integrity is really the heart and the core of what God has for us and why we should want to live a life of integrity. So, so let's get there. Um, let, let's look at, first of all, the threats to his integrity, and then I think we'll better understand why he has the integrity that he does. Um, you see a far different result in Mrs. Potiphar as you do in Joseph. And I want to be clear, this isn't a male-female thing. Um, the book of Genesis does a really good job to say uh, men lack integrity pretty, pretty often. Um, and, and so you come through the book of Genesis, and this is just finally a, a guy is actually doing something right. So you've got Joseph who's living, uh, who's living with integrity and withstands what I think two are the greatest challenges to integrity. Um, and the first one is just what we'll call the spontaneous moment of integrity. Th this is that, that once and done, it catches you off guard, that moment to, to be tempted to look at something, to take something, to do something, to, to whatever it is, that moment of integrity that we often reason with, it's just once or it's quick or, or it's a moment of weakness, or I'll probably get away with it. it. It won't really matter. And Joseph withstands it. He says, it does matter. 
Doing the right thing does matter, even if nobody is going to know that I have done it. Doing the right thing is important. That's the first one, is this spontaneous moment. The second one, which we'll spend a little bit more time on, is progressive temptation. Joseph said no once, but could he say no 50 times? As she begins to wear him down or attempt to wear him down. If you look at the, the text, the way it reads too, is, is that at first she just says, why don't you lie beside me? And then to, to flat out, why don't you come to bed with me? Why don't you sleep with me? And, and so there's a progression of what she's asking and what she's tempting him with. And Joseph is so incredibly wise to not even want to go near the beginning of the situation. To not even want to put himself in the context. Joseph wasn't even going in a house. The day this all happened, it, it was just a lapse in judgment where he goes in thinking somebody else is going to be in the house and nobody else is in the house and then, then it all falls apart. But, but Joseph doesn't even want to go near the situation. Oftentimes I'll, I'll talk with, with young guys about um, sexual purity and, and the struggles that they face and, um, and, and to speak analogies in their terms. I'll, I'll talk about winning the battle when it's easy to win. Winning the battle when it's easy to win. We just we did a podcast with a young guy um, that, that should be coming out soon on, on this whole subject. I think it's really good to check out. Um, but winning the battle when it's easy to win. What do I mean by that? So oftentimes in history, especially in Scripture, you see large armies that are defeated by small armies. And logically, that doesn't make sense. So what makes a small army capable of defeating a large army? They have some sort of strategic or tactical advantage in the situation that gives them the upper hand, other than the times when God just, you know, miraculously intervenes and, and they win pretty easily. But strategic or tactical advantage. So one of the things you see, and, and you see this a couple times in Scripture, where they decide we've got a large army that's got to go through a small space to come attack us. So let's not wait for them to go through the small space to the spread out and overwhelm us. Let's attack them in the confined space where we have an advantage. And this is, this is my plea to, to, to young men as I speak with them, is win the battle when it's easy to win. Win at the beginning. Win at the second the temptation comes into your mind, into your head, into your heart. Win it then, all of us. Win when it's easy to win. Don't let it go in your head. Don't, don't let it go on for a while with your eyes. You David and Bathsheba in the scripture where David looked at her and then he longed her. We've got Mrs. Potiphar who looks at Joseph, who studies Joseph and wants Joseph. Win the battle when it's easy to win because the beginning of a situation is foundational for you to maintain integrity throughout it. You know how I know this is important? Because how many times have you heard somebody who's made some major life mistakes and they've said something like this. It was never supposed to be that way. I never intended that to be the outcome. They lost the battle when it was easy to win. The army got through the pass, didn't cut them off at the pass, got through the pass, and they were overwhelmed. It was never supposed to be that way. We've got to be so incredibly cautious and guarded Jesus says the flesh, the human body, is weak. It's prone to temptation. Temptations which typically, and in this case certainly, apply and appeal to pleasure. What's interesting is, is I would look at Joseph, and Joseph has such a profound wisdom to value obedience to God and trust of his employer 
more than he values pleasure. And I understand that, that for us, pleasure is, in our culture, you know, in, in America, pleasure is king. Do whatever feels good. There shouldn't be any shame if it feels good. And pleasure has become a god in our culture. And what the biblical concept of of pleasure is, is going, God made it. Eric preached an awesome sermon on this a a couple months ago. It'd be worth going back and and checking out. I wish I could give you the title. Let me know if you want. I'll give it to you. Um, But God made pleasure to be a great thing. Psalm 16 goes, in the throne room of God, there are eternal, endless pleasures at his right hand. So if the coronavirus takes me home, and I end up with Jesus, I experience nothing but some form of pleasure forever. That's incredible. So so pleasure's not a bad thing, but it's never meant to be God. It's never meant to be what we chase after in life, as if this is is the pinnacle of human existence. You want to have 20-20 hindsight, that's 20-20 foresight in any area, uh, let it be in this category. How many times did you chase pleasure and regret it? How many times did you chase pleasure and regret it? I was talking to somebody this morning who's a hunter like myself, and we're talking about the easiest time to harvest a mature, like a trophy buck, is, is for a two-week period in the year. And these, these animals that are the wisest animals in the forest that live for six, you know, six seven years, and, and they avoid cars, and they avoid people and and they live for that long and you say for two weeks what makes them so stupid for two weeks that's their breeding season and they chase pleasure (laughs) and they chase it into a car or they chase it in front of my tree stand and it does not end well how many times have you chased pleasure and regretted it how many times did you choose integrity and you were thankful for it Wisdom lives in light of your answers to those two questions. How many times did you chase pleasure and regret it? How many times did you choose integrity and were thankful for it? Wisdom lives in light of that. What allows Joseph to be so incredibly wise? He saw all of life through the lens of what really, really actually mattered. And he filtered everything through it. This is what, he, this is, this is, this is what Joseph is saying. I love God and I love people. It all comes down to that. How then could I do, this is, these are his words, how then, so he goes through, he goes through. He's like, I've got everything. It's good. I've got a good job. I've got a good reputation. My master has given me everything I wanted except for you. And he could have said, no, 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 I, I'm not going to do this because of, because of my reputation. I'm not going to do this because of my career. I'm not going to do this because my, my freedom. But instead he says, how then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? The reputation, the career, the freedom, they're, they're, all, they're all second tier. This is about him and God. And he, goes, he goes, my master doesn't concern himself with anything. Won't somebody please in this situation think of Potiphar? Joseph's going, I do. I don't want this to happen to him. And so he loves God and he loves people more than he loves pleasure. You know what this text is, is really claiming? If God is all you have, then you have enough. Multiple times in Joseph's life, He loses his family, his friends, 
his position, his future, his hopes, his dreams. You just keep going down the line. He loses everything multiple, multiple times. And God's still somehow enough for him. If someone takes pleasure, if they take a reputation, if they take a career, if they take freedom, it does not demand that they also take integrity. They can take everything away from you in life, but it does not mean that they also must take your integrity with it. If you can love God and you can love people, you'll be just fine. So strong is this temptation, um, and so strong is his integrity. I don't even think we've even touched on what is the situation for Joseph to really become very, very angry about, which is this idea that, that Potiphar's wife, in her rejection, rewrites his entire story. Like she, she, she just redefines how everybody looks at him, all their opinions. She puts limits on his freedom, limits on his future, um, and she tells a story about him that's not true. She, she even plays the race card. It's because of this Hebrew guy, and it works. There's an African proverb that says, a worm in a court of birds never gets a hearing. A worm in a court of birds never gets a hearing. She goes, Joseph's a word. Oh, worm, everybody else, we're all birds here. We've got to get this guy. And Joseph becomes the center of a story that she created. He becomes a victim. And many of us have had others try to rewrite our stories. And it amazes, and it never ceases to amaze me, actually, how much those things hang with us. How they just stick to us and define us and keep coming up again and again and again. When someone rewrites our story, We've got to ask ourselves a question and how we respond. When someone attempts to rewrite your story, do you plot revenge or do you trust in God's plot for vindication? Do you plot revenge or do you, do you trust in God's plot for vindication? Revenge or vindication? Vindication is to, is, as we'll say, let what is, light, let what is right come to light. I made it rhyme so you can remember it. Let what is right come to light. Revenge, you know what revenge is. Why do you crave it? Why do you want it so badly? Why does it seem like it's going to feel so good to get vengeance? Why is there so strong of a pull to it? It's interesting. We even will say, uh, we'll say, I just need to get even. Is it really even? I found that most of the time, if you cut me, I'm going to cut you just a little more because you surprised me and I didn't like it. So there you go. Why is that so incredibly appealing to us? It fascinates me. Here's what you need to know. If you respond, you, you might have been right in the moment, but then later you come back and you, you get vengeance, you seek out vengeance for the person that retold your story, reshaped others' opinions. You, you know what you do? Vengeance overturns integrity. It undoes it. Do you ever watch a football game where uh, somebody scores a touchdown and the crowd's going crazy and they're doing some ridiculous touchdown celebration dance and, and everybody's cheering and then, then they come on and they say like the, the ruling on the field is being challenged and they watch the review and it's like no nah, he, he didn't catch it at all it bounced on the ground he picked it up and ran and stepped out of bounds four times and scored a touchdown it wasn't even close what are you doing and then they come back and what do they say the ruling on the field was overturned vengeance overturns your integrity it undoes the good that was accomplished through it. What, Joseph is, what Joseph's life is saying is that 
Other people's evil actions do not justify a morally flawed response. Someone else is evil. Someone else is writing your story does not justify a morally flawed response out of you. Doesn't justify hatred. It doesn't justify slander where you try and get back and shape other people's opinions about them. It, it doesn't justify gossip. It does not justify trying to expose all of their faults and failures. Someone else's attempt to, to rewrite your story does not justify you with your own morally flawed response. Integrity sees it through. That's progressive temptation right there. The temptation over and over again to try and get back at the person that hurt you. And you've got to say no 50, 100 times. You've got to win the battle when it's small. Win it when it's easy to win. As soon as it comes in your mind, I'm not going there. Vindication, on the other hand. Vindication, we say letting what is right come to light. We phrase it that way intentionally because it's not making it come to light. It's not going out of your way to win this battle for you. It's, it's letting God work in the situation. It, it's, it's not choosing a path uh, of pleasure and revenge. It's choosing a path of patience. Letting what is light, letting what is right come to light. I should have turned them so they didn't rhyme, so I didn't keep messing over. That would have been better. Other people can hate you and judge you and blame you, but they don't have a pen to rewrite the story from God's perspective. And so whatever false accusations or judgment or gossip have been said about you, it's not changing what God knows to be true. And that's what your heart has to rest in. You don't believe your story to be in the hands that don't belong to God. It's just not how it works. Like here's the thing. if you're Because I find in these situations when somebody rewrites your story and then you've got to you have the sense of needing to prove it to everybody. Um, and really what you're looking for is validation for somebody else to say you were right. And we think if we hear those three words, you were right, that it will be right and everything will work out and all get all the satisfaction out of those three words. And, and here, here's, here's two problems with that. Number one, most people who've said you were wrong are too biased, too biased and too stubborn to admit they were wrong. So they're probably not going to. You're probably chasing after a unicorn that you're not going to find. All right? So, so they're too biased and too stubborn to admit that they were wrong. The second problem is, is even if you get it, you'll still want a deeper sense of affirmation. Because those words, those three words, words will not hear the hurt that you experience. Uh, just the other day, I had somebody who, uh, from, from a deep hurt long ago, they said, I can't believe I missed it. Man, you were right the whole time. Those words, while they were nice to hear, don't carry any of the weight of the affirmation that God's word does. That's where you get healed. That's where you take your heart to the faith and belief that God offers us in his word. And so here's, the, from, from experience, what I've learned is when that, when that concept comes up in your heart, whatever that hurt was, don't go there, go here. Don't go there. Don't go back to it. Don't even bother revisiting. It's not worth the space in your head. Go here, which is God's word. So like Matthew 5, Jesus says, Blessed are you when people insult you. Cool. That sounds like a great day. 
I'm just going to walk around town and try to get people to insult me so I can be more blessed, right? But that's a bit counterintuitive to how you and I live for the most part. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and watch this, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Blessed are you. Why in the world would I be blessed? Because Jesus goes, you're in good company. You're not the first. Rejoice and be glad. Because great is your reward in heaven. For the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. It's not the first time. And God knows and God cares and God loves. And you're in good company. Romans 8 verse 33. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. And in God's courtroom, there is no worm in a court of birds. There's God, the all-fair judge who sees all and knows all. Romans 8, 34, he continues, Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Why? Because Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. That he becomes your defense attorney. It's not true. It's not true. It's not true. I paid for that. I've forgiven of that. You've been cleansed of that. When you get to live that way, then you stop being consumed and concerned with what everybody else thinks. And you say, I'm going to do what God wants. If he wants me to be seen as right, then he'll bring it to light. And and I'll trust him and I'll run after him I'm going to love him. I'm going to love other people. And I'm going to make choices that are in line with integrity. If you get that down, even if you get it like 70% down, even if you get like a C minus, I think life will get dramatically better for you. I think God wants to produce this in you. I think he wants to produce a confidence that says, Jesus Christ speaks on my behalf before the throne room of God. What, what have I got to fear? If you get that right, you'll be in, in what I would say is pretty distinguished company with Joseph and, and with whoever else has chosen to live this way. I was reading a, a quote from uh, uh, an old theologian named Ambrose. And Ambrose, uh, we'll read it and, and I'll explain it because old theologian guy's like, I've got to read it like four times so I can tell it to you once. Um, so I'm going to read it to you once and then tell it to you. So uh, he says this, why should I enlarge on arrangements that pertain to a private house in the case of that slave Joseph who ruled an empire? It counts for still more that Joseph earlier ruled himself. He goes, why should I make a big deal of the fact that Joseph ruled a house well, that he took care of chores and responsibilities and delegated? Why should I make a big deal of Joseph ruling an empire with his governances and his policies? Why should I make a big deal of that when the greater thing that Joseph did was he ruled himself? The greater thing is that he ruled his own heart well. Of course God gave him a kingdom. He was king of his own heart. Because God gave him strength and God gave him wisdom and he applied it. And he ruled what really mattered his own heart. That, that's the center of integrity, is I'm going to rule what's in here, what's in here really well by God's strength for God's glory because I love him and I love the people around him. And if I rule those things well, everybody else in my sphere of influence is benefited. 
You, you don't believe me? Check the story of Joseph. Go home and read it and see how everybody around him, uh, their, their lives are improved because of his integrity, because he rules himself well. And as he rules himself well, he understands how to rule other things well. I hope we get this. I hope that you find out firsthand how awesome it is to live for the future like you wish you would have lived in the past. That you value integrity today and tomorrow like you did yesterday. Because when you live that way, I think God does some absolutely incredible things through you. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you humbly because none of us had the integrity to earn life after death. And really the story of the scriptures is a story of your son coming in flawless integrity. And for 33 years facing every spontaneous temptation, all the progressive temptations, and showing absolutely flawless integrity every time. And so the, the faith that removes the fear of what happens after this life is really about you. It's about your love and it's about your sacrifice. And Father, I pray that each one of us responds to that in faith and receives the gift of life after death. Forgiveness of sins. And Father, I pray that we look and see sin for what it is. It's just a drain to all the joy in life. And we say, God, I want to run after you with integrity. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name.